Christ Community Church is called by the God of all grace. For the transforming of life in Middle Tennessee. Spiritually, socially, and culturally. Through the power of the gospel. From Franklin to the nations of the world. All for the glory of God. For more information, visit ChristCommunity.org. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 12, 18 through 27. And if you are using a worship center Bible, please turn to page 718. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so uh, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. First of all, because of the tremendous majesty of the themes that are in it, also because it has a terrible pun in English, uh, which all pastors are obligated by uh, holy orders to share with their congregations. Things which, if you've grown up in church, you know this pun, but in case there are, you know, those of you who have not grown up in church and you don't know this pun, it's important for you to know this pun. And Jesus is here talking to the Sadducees. And the, the immediate reason it says, the, the first thing it tells you about the Sadducees is they don't believe in the resurrection, which is why they're so Sadducee. Okay, good. All right, now you got it. <laughs> That's terrible. Isn't that awful? But if you, you know, you got to know that stuff, all right? That's how you remember who, who, who this is. Where are we here in Mark's gospel? Why are we dealing with this text? Um, we're here in this particular place in Mark's gospel. And, and we're in Jesus' last week of public ministry, and there is an increasing level of confrontation that's going on between Jesus and the authorities in Jerusalem. This will culminate in his crucifixion and, of course, then ultimately his resurrection. And so we've seen representatives of the Sanhedrin confront him. We've seen the Pharisees and the Herodians come together to confront him. Nobody has been successful. Jesus keeps turning their arguments back on them. And so finally come 
the people who are regarded as the most eminent theologians of the day, the Sadducees. Uh, These are highly educated, very wealthy, politically connected individuals. So these people have K Street, Washington connections. These people have Wall Street wealth, and these people have more letters after their name than in them. These are, these are Oxbridge, Harvard, Yale graduates. These are the most eminent people of the time. They are, in essence, what you and I would think of in contemporary terms as holding to theological liberalism. Here's a few things about the Sadducees. Um, we're told here they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's because they believed or did not believe in any kind of supernatural, invisible world that was interacting with our visible world. They believed in God. They believed only in the first five books of Scripture, not the rest. So they took a kind of menu approach to the Bible. I'll take this part, but not that part. I don't believe that there's any supernatural coming and going between this world and the next. And so any thought about life after death, that was repugnant to them. They didn't hold to any of that. So here's what they had. They had this kind of religion which had all the robes but didn't have any of the guts. In Paul's words, they held to a form while denying the power. And so they show up and they've got their great question. You know, they've worked on this question for a long time. I mean, they were up all night with this one, right? I know what we'll do. We'll trap Jesus because that's what's going on here. That's what everybody's trying to do. Trap Jesus into saying something. Try to trap him, show how foolish he is. And they come with their big question. So their big question is, of course, what happens to this woman who's married to all these different men? Because in the resurrection, who will she be married to? And Jesus looks at them. And this is, this is another reason I love this passage is because it's so funny. It's so funny. I mean, the people who heard Jesus say this would have buckled over laughing. He just looked at them and went, he's, in essence, he said this, you know, for smart people, you guys are idiots, aren't you? Really? That's the best you've got. Now, what they're referencing is an Old Testament law that's meant to preserve family because land inheritance was tied to family. So if a, a man died and he left his wife, then other, another member of the family, his brother, would marry her so that she didn't lose the inheritance of land and the land wouldn't pass from that family into another family. So that's this kind of ancient Near Eastern background that's going on here. And so they come up with this scenario in which this happens several times, seven times with no offspring. And so who is she going to be married to? And Jesus just looks at them and goes, you know, you guys have no clue. And the reason you have no clue is because there's two things you don't understand. You don't understand the Scriptures, and you don't understand the power of God. And then he asks the perfectly magnificent, insulting question you can ask any group of professional theologians. Have you never read the Bible? That's what he says to them. Have you never read well, I want, to, I want to dig into what he said here. But there's a couple of things I want to affirm just before we get there about the resurrection because I want to say something about that here right at the start. Jesus, of course, deals with their, their, their initial question and dismisses it this way. He says, you know, God's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the living. 
not the dead. So let me say something to all of us here this morning about those who've gone ahead of us. My mom's gone ahead of us. Maybe you have a son or a daughter who's gone on ahead of you. Maybe your dad has gone on ahead of you. Maybe you just buried your grandfather. Those who are gone ahead of us are alive. He's the God of the living, not the dead. Paul writes, and he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, don't be under any illusions about those who've fallen asleep. We grieve, but we grieve in hope. And the dead in Christ will rise first. We're not going to go ahead of them. If we're alive until the second coming, they're beating us. They're all, they're ahead of us. That's the, that's the church on high. That's the saints on high. We'll all one day be part of that together. And so let me, let me help you hear Jesus' words today. For those who are grieving, for those who know this sorrow, the pain of death, listen, they are not lost. He's the God of the living and not the dead. And if you're sitting there this morning, you might even be facing a diagnosis that's telling you you're going to be gone in three weeks. Let me tell you, the dead in Christ will rise first. I, when I grew up Lutheran, I used to think that, I thought that was a reference to the Lutherans, that the dead in Christ would rise first. But it's not, it's not. That was a misinterpretation. It's about everybody who's gone on ahead of us to, to be with the Lord. And, and my friends, they are not lost. They are not lost. And we will be reunited. Now, of course, that reunion is not a simple continuation of our current existence. In the resurrection, Jesus says, you don't marry, you're not given in marriage. You don't lose these people, but who we are is changed. We are changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, we shall not all sleep, uh, but we shall be changed. I saw that verse taken out of context and used on a sign outside of a, a church nursery door. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I thought that was, I thought that was pretty funny. So, so, but what does it mean? What it means is that some of us will live until the second coming. The rest of us will already go home and be with the Lord, but we will all be reunited. But in that reunion that takes place, it's not simply a continuation of what we've had here. It's a glorification of what we've had here. And so it's not an issue of being married in heaven. You're not married in heaven. Some of you are thinking, that's the best news I've had all morning right there. Okay, so marriage isn't what's going on in heaven. That's not, we're, 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 we're angel, we're like the angels. We're not, we don't become angels, but we're like the angels. We're not married or given in marriage. We have this entirely new kind of existence. And it includes our bodies. It says in the scripture that we'll have resurrection bodies. Jesus Jesus, in his resurrection, one of the first things he did was sit down with his disciples and make them breakfast. He asked them, have you guys got anything to eat? How many of you are glad that in the resurrection we'll still be eating? Thanks be to God. All right. I thought I'd get an amen on that, but it was okay. It was okay. So, so it's physical, it's spiritual, it's powerful. And Jesus says to the leading theologians of his day, why do you have this outward external form of religion, but you don't really understand or hold to the power that's going on? It's because, it's because you really, really don't know God's word and you don't know God's power. And that diagnosis is still true for many people who have religious garb. Many people in the world, they don't know God's word and they don't know God's power. Look at this question that Jesus asks. Why put me to the test, he says. Why are you testing me? He says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, 
how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, I want to read for you Matthew's account of this encounter. Here's Matthew's account. As, this is Jesus talking to these people. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? Now, I want to take that question that Jesus asks these men, and I want to just set it out before us this morning, and I want to give you three things about the Word of God and the power of God that can be truly transformational for you today. Here's the first thing, the priority of the Scriptures, the priority. Jesus says, have you not, he doesn't say, have you not heard what God said? He says, have you not what? Read it. Have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? And then he quotes what God said to Moses. Have you not read what God has spoken to you? Now, Jesus says these words 2,000 years ago. But God met with Moses at the burning bush and spoke those words to Moses 1,500 years before that. So Jesus is talking to people, and he's saying, 1,500 years ago, God said something to this man, and then it was written down, because when God said it to him 1,500 years ago, when you read it, it is God saying it to who? To you. Have you not read... What God said to you. So in other words, even though this book is a very, listen carefully, a very human book. Human. You go, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought you, it's God's word. It's a divine, it's a divine revelation. It is. It is. But it's, it's not a download. There's only a couple of places in Scripture where God says to a person, just write this down. It happens with the Ten Commandments, happens in a section of Jeremiah. Here, just write this down. So they write it down. More often than not, it's, it's recording the story of God's interaction with people or Paul writing letters or as we're studying Mark's gospel, Mark is writing down Peter's sermons about Jesus And in each of these ways, it's very human. It's over 42 different authors over a period of 1,500 years who contribute to what is bound together in a single book. But in fact, it's a a whole library. And the interesting thing about it is when you read it from all these different people over all these different years in all these different cultures, what you discover is God speaking through very human ways. You go, well, is, is, that, is, that, is that in any way undermining of the authority of it? No, it magnifies it. It magnifies it. Ultimately, you see it in Jesus, who doesn't arrive floating down from the sky and floating across and saying, I'm God. The Word became what? 
flesh and dwelt among us. So what did that flesh look like? It was a baby. God became one of us, a tiny infant. And it would have taken you a divine revelation to know who he was. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father is in heaven. If you saw Jesus in Jerusalem walking past you, the son of God could have walked right past you and you'd have never known who he was because he wasn't glowing. He wasn't floating. He was just on his way. You could have walked right past him. It would have taken the Holy Spirit going, that's the Messiah right there. If you were a professional theologian, if I'd been a Pharisee or a Sadducee, I would have been, and I would have been. I mean, let's get real. Right? Because I'm going to read the books and I'm going to do the work and i got my theological convictions. If I'd lived in that day, I'd have been one of Jesus' enemies. I'd have looked at him and said, who is this Who's this hick from Galilee who's deceived the multitudes? He's probably doing his miracles by the power of the devil. I'd have been one of Jesus' opponents. It would have taken the mercy of God and a divine revelation for me to know who he was. And so when, when you see Jesus showing up, he shows up in very human garb. When God speaks, here's what Calvin said. John Calvin said, when God speaks, he lisps. What does that mean? It means he speaks in a way we get. We get it. God speaks, if you read the Greek New Testament, it was written in Greek, there are places in this Greek New Testament where the Greek isn't very good. And you go, so for all you grammar Nazis, you, you, you say, was God, God very not he's, not, he's just not very good at grammar, I guess? No, that's not the case. He uses human weakness. He speaks our language. He speaks in our ways. He speaks in poetry. He speaks in songs. He speaks in prophecies. He speaks in commandments. He speaks in letters that an apostle writes to a church. God speaks like you speak. He uses figures of speech. But it's still God's word. And that means it has a an incredible priority in our life. Have you not read that which was spoken to you? Now, of course, you can go, oh, well, that's a a great duty that I have. No, no, listen, um, the Bible can be your delight. Your delight. Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them and they became to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The joy and the rejoicing of my heart. David, King David said, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation every day. Martin Luther said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands that lays hold of me. The Bible is not a dictionary. It's not an encyclopedia that you got to go, oh, i got to look stuff up. I mean, you would use Google now for that anyway. It's not the way it works. It's not a cookbook with recipes. If I just follow the recipe, you'll hear people say it's kind of like a manual. No, the Bible is a pop-up picture book that shows us the story of God coming to relate to us. And this tells us not only about its priority then, but about its purpose. Have you not read that which was spoken to you? spoken to you. You see, 
here's the, here's, the, here's the purpose of Scripture. The priority is, have you not read? Have you not read that which was spoken to you? Here's its purpose. God is a speaking God. The whole Bible begins with this. In the beginning, God created. How? Well, there was darkness. There was void. And then God said, let there be light. God spoke. He spoke, creation emerged. He formed it by the breath of his mouth. But then God's word comes to us to show us who he is and bring us to him. So there's there's God's creative work that's going on, but there's also God's, listen to this, his relating work that's going on. In Isaiah, God puts it this way. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, if you stop there, it wouldn't be much help to us because we would just have to admit, you know, that's true. God, your ways are higher than mine, and your thoughts are higher than mine, and that's pretty obvious. But that's not where Isaiah finishes. (coughs) As the heavens are higher than the earth and my ways are higher than your ways, he says, but... As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and water the earth and make it bear and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It won't come back empty. God's thoughts and God's ways are like the rain, which are high, come down. How? Through his word. Ultimately, in Jesus, the word made flesh. So Jesus said, he who listens to me, listens to my Father. God is speaking, creating, and God is speaking to relate us to him. Now the creation itself, because it's brought into existence by God, it too is speaking to us. God is speaking to us in creation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in what God's made, every leaf. Every tree, every star, every river, every mountain is saying something to us. In Psalm 19, it says, The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The stars are there and there's no place under the stars that don't hear what they're saying. You go, well, how do they, how do they speak? Well, they speak in such a way, Paul says in Romans, that people are left without an excuse. In other words, the creation is so clear in its testimony that nobody can say God isn't there. But, but, that psalm, Psalm 19, goes on to say, after saying God speaks in nature, he says, but the word of the Lord The word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So the stars will tell you God is there, but the scriptures will change your heart. The word of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. You see, a tree can tell you there's a God But only the scriptures can tell you why the tree exists. The tree exists as a place where God hung between heaven and earth to bring you into a relationship with him. You can see this interplay. We're about to enter into Advent 
Think about it like this. The Magi from the east, why did they come looking for the birth of the Messiah? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Why did the Magi come? We have seen his star. The star got them all the way to Jerusalem. When they got to Jerusalem, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod said, what are you talking about? And he called for the theologians. And he said, where's the Messiah to be born? And they said, well, let's look it up. Oh, it says here in Micah chapter 5, he is to be born in Bethlehem. So listen, the star got him to Jerusalem. Micah got him to Bethlehem. The star will get you to a place where you know there's a God, but it will take the scriptures to get you to Jesus. And that's what happened to Moses. And that's the power I want to talk to you about for just a minute. You see, the purpose of Scripture is to reveal Jesus to you. And that's what happened at the burning bush. This is the power. The priority, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? The purpose, God speaks to reveal Himself and to relate us to Christ. But listen to the power. Have you not read that which was spoken to who? You. When God said, and Mark is very clear about this, at the bush, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What does that mean? It means, my friends, that every time you take this book and you open it up, you are standing on holy ground. And the God who spoke from the burning bush is speaking to you. This is your holy ground. This is your burning bush moment. What happened to Moses in that moment? His life had been an abject failure. Forty years educated in Egypt, then 40 years on the backside of a wilderness. Now... He'll spend the next 40 years going back to Egypt to liberate God's people. But how did that happen? His life was changed. His life was transformed because he saw this this bush that was burning but wasn't consumed. And when he got close to it, he heard a voice from the fire saying, Moses, Moses, when you take up the Bible, God is going to speak to you, Mary. James, Franklin, Justin, Steve, David. Because it is God speaking to you in that moment just as He spoke to Moses. And the same power that changed Moses will change you. If you are completely satisfied with how your life is today, you think you've got it together and you have no need for anything, then please don't ever open the Bible. Because in the moment you open the Bible, you are on holy ground 
and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, not the dead. That God, the God who sent Moses back to Egypt, who performed signs and wonders, the God who revealed himself as the greater Joshua who knocked down the walls, the God who was the shepherd king who, who, who conquered the giants that Israel faced, the God who revealed himself to Isaiah, the God who has become flesh, Jesus Christ, that God, that God speaking. The God who by his words spoke the universe into existence, that God in the words of Scripture will speak to you and that power will totally change your life. For the word of God, listen to what Hebrews tells us, is living, it's alive, it's active. The word of God is living. And it's active. It's on the move. And it's like a sword that pierces down into the, the, the very deepest part of you. A sword, he says, that pierces to the, the joint where the marrow and the bone meet. That sword pierces down into there. And it exposes your heart. Moses, Moses. And his life was changed. This morning, you go, it's just the Bible. My friend, whether you're holding a leather-bound version or you've got an app on your phone, every time you open it, it is God speaking to you. And that, my friend, will change your life. This is your burning bush moment. This is the God who changes history. And He can change your history. And through you, change the history of city and nations. Wow! Have you never read that which was spoken to you by God? Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask that you would increase in our lives those burning bush moments, those places where we see Christ revealed to us, those moments when we open up the text and we're not just reading words, but we find the flames reaching into our soul and transforming us. Change us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.